Well, hello there. Welcome to the show again. I want to clear up some things about Malta. I have been on the Malta hunt, picking up the trail. A couple things that might have seemed a little bit confusing about the last show. Um, just the thing about research is you have to formulate a certain amount of information before you can start asking questions. Let me share the questions I have because logically you might also share those same questions. There's a couple different groups here. The one is the Knights Templar. That's the group I was talking about that founded their order in the Holy Land in 1118, of course, A.D. that assimilated into that agnostic, uh, agnostic tradition, okay? They, the lineage known as the Johnanite Church, okay? So they started out in the whole, this is their story, okay? They started out in the Holy Land and they assimilated into a lineage known as the Johnanite Church, which had been founded by St. John the Baptist more than a thousand years previously. The ruling patriarch of this ancient tradition when the Templar order first formed was Theotoclet, T-H-E-O-C-I-E-T-E. The Johnites are St. John the Baptist. That's who they talk about. And they said Tecolite met the first Templar Grandmaster, Hughes de Panier, and then pass the mantle to his Johnanite authority to him. So Hughes de Panier thus becomes John number 70, and the Johnanites and the Johns, it's called the Johns. Don't we call people who do tricks with prostitutes Johns? <laughs> All about the words, right? Okay, so that had begun including Jesus, John the Apostle, and Mary Magdalene. John was not just a name, but also a honorific title, meaning he of Gnostic power and wisdom. It is related to the Sanskrit John, J-N-A-N-A, pronounced Yana, meaning Gnostic, G-N-O-S-I-S. -S. So, the and then they... Boy, this is something else, right? So, yeah, so we have the Knights of Templar, and out of the Knights of Templar, we end up with these Knights of St. John, okay? What you will be seeing people wear are, they are members of the Knights of St. John, okay? And they're wearing those capes. And they're most visibly associated with their distinctive uniforms and regalia. I just went through a bunch of pictures. Very easy to find a bunch of them, okay? They incorporate traditional chivalry, and this is the part that really got my attention here. Okay, let me start over again. Members of the Knights of St. John are most notably visually associated with their distinctive uniforms and regalia, including the... Um, um, <laughs> what are we talking about? Maltese falcon, or the Maltese cross, right? So the Maltese cross is what they rock, right? Including traditional chivalry elements with the U.S. Army uniforms in the 1880s, which many of the original orders founders were familiar and had access. So somehow this nice of St. John 
ties into the U.S. Army uniforms. Fancy that, right? Okay, so their membership extends globally, but most notably in the United States and Africa. Here we got Africa. Isn't this fascinating? Africa, Africa, Afro. Is this why all these freaks are setting up bases all over Africa? Okay, let me contain my excitement here. The organization's membership extends globally, but most notably in the United States and Africa, with commanderies in the United Kingdom, Canada, Trinidad, and Tobago, and elsewhere. <laughs> the Order of St. John, short for Most Vulnerable Order of the Hospital of St. John of Jerusalem, and also known as St. John International, is a British royal order of chivalry constituted in 1888 by royal charter from Queen Victoria and dedicated to St. John the Baptist. So when they give themselves these, when they wear the capes, they're talking about the order of St. John. So the order of St. John rocks that other thing. So, uh... They have this poor fellow soldiers of Christ and the Temple of Solomon. And I don't know exactly what that means, but the Knights Templar are simply called the Templars. T-E-M-P-L-A-R-S. So you want to look for that word, Templars. It was a Catholic military order founded in 1118. Of course, it has an 8, right? Headquartered on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem through 1128. So, yeah, that's who these people are. That's who they are. And there's got to be a ton more digging here. But I thought you might like to hear this history from them. And I'll share one more thing with you. And then you can listen to the um, really great explanation of all of this stuff. And remember, I'm only really focused on the last couple hundred years. But the rest of it makes for interesting dialogue, right? Let's close with the finances of the Knights Templar. It says, the Knights Templar were not only great warriors, but formidable financiers as well. One of the two ranks of non-fighting men, for instance, was known as the farmers, who were, who were responsible for the administration of the order's worldly possessions. The other rank was the chaplains, which tended to the spiritual needs of the order as they had the official endorsement of the church. The wealthy of Europe provided the Templars with a large amount of donations in the form of money, land, and fighting men. Additionally, they were exempted from all taxation, uh, including the tithes they got from the clergy. This is really quite a racket, right? Thus, the Knights Templars became one of the most affluent institutions during the Middle Ages. Anyhow, I will be back with a lot more. When I get done with a few more things here, I'm going to be sharing my thoughts because it's only been a day to try to absorb all this stuff. So be safe out there and enjoy this clip that's going to show up in the next couple of seconds here. Goodbye for now. On the 8th of September, the Bells of Valletta commemorate a decisive event in the history of Malta.
in St. John's Cathedral, the island state commemorates a military victory that occurred more than 400 years ago. In 1565, the Knights Hospitaller of St. John defeated the Ottoman forces, whose massive fleet had besieged the island for six months. This victory, which ended the Great Siege of Malta, is still regarded as a momentous event in the nation's history. The High Mass celebrated by Malta's Archbishop is attended by representatives of every branch of Maltese society, including current members of the Order. The Knights wear their traditional cloaks emblazoned with the famous eight-pointed cross, but the sword is no longer part of their uniform. The Order has returned to its original aims, religious and humanitarian service. The real mission of the Order was, and still is, the defense and nurture of the faith, but also very essential to take care of the poor and the sick. That is why the original name was the Hospitallers. We started as a hospital, and wherever the Knights were, there was always a main large hospital. Nowadays, we do exactly that. capital of Malta. The Baroque city was built in 1566, after the Great Siege. It's named after Jean de la Valette, Grand Master of the Knights of Malta and Hero of the Siege. A short distance from his memorial is the Citadel, which now serves as the embassy of the Sovereign Order of the Knights of Malta. It is an international organization we operate in over a hundred countries. We are present there, physically helping. We have also uh, diplomatic ties with over a hundred countries. So that makes it very much like a nation too. But it is not an NGO, far from it. It is something very, very particular. It is a lay religious organization. The headquarters of the order that once ruled Malta are no longer here in Valletta. They're in Rome. The order issues its own diplomatic passports and it has permanent observer status at the United Nations. The Order of Malta manages and operates hospitals all over Europe, in America, places for the terminally ill, in Lebanon. We have tens and tens of centers over there in Bethlehem. We, we manage also a maternity hospital. When there are national disasters, the Order of Malta is very often present. And we've been to all kinds of places, Cambodia, America, Vietnam, etc. Besides also these large organizational things, besides that, down, down, down the line, we are also there hands-on. 
So it's no surprise, for example, that you will be walking in Rome sometimes in the evening and you see somebody feeding the poor people underneath the bridges. They will be volunteers or members of the order doing that. When the Knights built Valletta, they also constructed the Sacra Infermeria. At the time, it was the largest hospital in Christendom. It was also the most modern. There were a thousand beds, and patients were treated with the most up-to-date methods. Food was served on silver plates for reasons of hygiene. The Grand Master of the Order himself nursed patients here. But the Order of Knights Hospitaller is much older. It began in the 11th century as a hospice for Christian pilgrims to Jerusalem. The hospice was dedicated to John the Baptist, hence the name, Military Order of St. John of the Hospital at Jerusalem, or the short form, Knights of St. John. Since its establishment on the island of Malta in 1530, however, its members are often called the Knights of Malta. The port of Valletta today. Large cruise ships call almost daily. The waterfront with its Baroque facades. Former warehouses built by the Knights. Usually passengers have only one day to explore Valletta, just enough to gain a quick impression. Cavernous streets, nested houses with wooden bay windows, a legacy of its Arab past. Statues of saints on street corners. And finally, the auberge, the night's lodgings. A modest term for their splendid palaces. The knights were divided into eight long or language groups. Each had its own lodgings. Their facades are evidence of the order's prosperity. One of Europe's most beautiful Baroque buildings is now the office of the Prime Minister of Malta. It once belonged to knights from Castile, Leon and Portugal. The layout of the old city was an innovation in the 16th century. The streets laid perfectly straight, forming a grid crisscrossing the letter. And there are stairs with unusually shallow steps, ideal if you need to race up them. This was the first European city designed on a drawing board. They built these streets, these, um, uh, grid, the grid iron plan, parallel streets running from north to south, east to west. In fact, in Valletta today, you still have South Street and North Street, East Street and West Street, to show you the way uh, the streets were actually built. Valletta was built in reaction to the siege of 1565. The city had to be unassailable, a Christian bastion in the Mediterranean. Watchtowers everywhere, and thick walls. The stronghold, known as the Red Tower, could accommodate 40 men, a small garrison that had a view of the neighboring islands of Comino and Gozo. The security of the island and its inhabitants had top priority, for the Knights had been singularly unsuccessful as a military force before the Great Siege. They were no match for the armies of the Ottoman Empire.
In the Grand Master's Palace in Valletta, you can trace the Order's turbulent history. The building that now houses the Maltese Parliament was once the residence of the Grand Master, the head of the Order. Portraits of the Grand Masters hang here, along with the city's founder. Here in Malta, that means between 1530 and 1798, there were in all 28 Grand Masters, and 14, that means half of them, were actually French. The French were always uh, in a majority, but there were also other nationalities. The Knights came from all over Europe. They came from Italy, Spain, and Portugal. The German historian Thomas Freller is intrigued by the international character of the order. He's lived on Malta for more than 10 years. His special field is the history of the Mediterranean region in the 16th and 17th centuries. Freller says it's remarkable that knights from eight European areas lived together on Malta in spite of some tensions. Man asks, Deutsch, Französisch. They eat German or French food. They even brought their own painters along. Their servants were from home, and so were their artists. The order was a kind of NATO from the military aspect, but they didn't get along as well as some idealized accounts suggest. Lots of duels were fought between knights from Spain and France because of the rivalry between their home countries. There was also a lot of animosity between the Jesuits and the French knights. So you see, this Christian harmony, not surprisingly, since they were only human, was not always perfect. You really can't say it was an ideal state or an ideal island. Nevertheless, it worked for 268 years. Around the walls of the conference and reception rooms of the Grand Master's Palace, frescoes by Leonello Spada depict the most significant events in the Order's history. Attacked by Muslim armies, the Knights first lost their fortresses and hospices in the Holy Land, then on Cyprus. They fled to the island of Rhodes, but after 200 years they were vanquished again. The expansion of the Ottoman Empire seemed unstoppable. Sultan Suleiman I allowed them to withdraw from Rhodes honorably. In 1521, the knights lost Rhodes. They had nowhere to go. And this is when Charles V, Emperor Charles V, gave them Malta. They came here in 1530, and they stayed in Malta for 268 years. This is the document in which Charles V gave the islands of Malta, Gozo and Camino, as well as the city of Tripoli in North Africa, to the knights. By doing so, the ruler of the Holy Roman Empire, who was also king of Germany and of Spain, hoped to make Malta a Christian bastion against the Ottoman threat. For the knights, the situation on Malta was similar to Rhodes. Rhodes had been a bastion against Ottoman expansion. Strategically, Malta was perhaps even more ideal because it lies about halfway between the coasts of Sicily and North Africa. The Mediterranean is very narrow at that point. And we mustn't forget that the Knights also held Tripoli for 30 years. 
Tripoli was an important harbor in North Africa. So if you imagine a line from Syracuse to Tripoli, that was where the Knights of Malta blocked the Ottoman advance. After the Great Siege, Valletta was built as a fortress. It lies between two natural harbors, Mashamshet Harbor and Grand Harbor, which is the nerve center of Malta. Across the bay lie the three cities, Senglia, Kospikua, and Birgu. A modern yacht marina occupies the waters where the Knights of Malta once dropped anchor. Right at the center of Grand Harbor stands Fort St. Angelo. When the Knights settled in Malta in 1530, the fort was occupied by the Grand Master and his court. All the knights who came to Malta at the time settled in the neighboring town of Birgu. St. Angelo remained the seat of the order until after the Great Siege in 1565, that is, 35 years after the order came to Malta. In Birgu's narrow lanes, you can still find some of the very first knights' lodgings. The various language groups had their own houses even back then, although a lot less pretentious than the palaces they later built in Valletta. Birgu withstood the Great Siege of 1565, and since then it's also been known as Vittoriosa, the victorious city. During the siege, the fort played an incredibly important role because it was where all military operations for the defense of the island were planned. The first grandmasters therefore lived here, the first grandmasters were buried here, but after the victory over the Ottoman Empire in 1565, the grandmaster of the time decided to build a new city on the other side of Grand Harbor and gave it his name, Valletta. One wing of the Grand Master's Palace houses the historic armory, including a collection of weapons spanning 300 years, suits of armor and weapons used by the knights and their foot soldiers, displaying the craftsmanship of Europe's most famous armorers. The leading members of the order were recruited from the uppermost echelons of European society. Usually the elder son in a family inherited the family estates and the family properties, the family incomes. Sometimes the second son would join the church. Perhaps a third son would join the local army or armed forces or navy. And perhaps the fourth or the fifth son would become a knight of Malta. There are also trophies on display, weapons captured from the enemy a large number of Ottoman sabers, as well as richly ornamented guns and armor. Usually, the Muslim armies greatly outnumbered the Christians, but the Knights of Malta didn't hesitate to sacrifice their lives, as their motto says, for the faith. When I say defending the faith, I mean defending the Roman Catholic faith. I think we must always bear in mind and take into consideration the fact that these wars which were fought between Christianity and the Muslim faith 
didn't always depend on religious beliefs. There were also commercial interests which were involved. The trade routes in the Mediterranean had to be defended for commercial interests for all the European monarchs. Battles were increasingly fought at sea. The Knights of Malta were a naval power that commanded considerable respect in the Mediterranean. In Birgu's Maritime Museum, there are paintings and models of the ships the Knights used to hold the Ottoman forces in check. But the Christian ships weren't only used in defense. They often attacked the enemy's merchant vessels to capture and plunder them. During that period of history, piracy was a common method of filling state coffers. Piracy was a very important factor in the existence of Malta in the Knights. The order's treasury was dependent on piracy. The population lived from it. The traditions, culture and economy, a whole spectrum of factors lived from piracy. In that period it wasn't viewed as something reprehensible, as we might think today. It was a profession, like being a soldier, a baker or a butcher. The Knights of Malta still have the use of the upper part of Fort St. Angelo. Fra Christian has lived here for 13 years. As the Order's representative, he keeps an eye on the restoration work that's currently being carried out. The Order has provided him with spacious accommodation and even a small chapel. Right outside his windows is a larger-than-life statue of the knight's patron saint, John the Baptist. The order currently has 13,500 members worldwide. John Chrétien is also a monk. I am one of the approximately 60 religious members. In other words, knights who have taken vows of poverty, chastity and obedience, as in any other religious order. Sometimes people wonder whether the position of a Knight of Malta is something one inherits, whether it is, let's say, characteristic of certain families and not of other families. I think I'd like to make it clear that hereditary, heredity doesn't come into it at all. One becomes a Knight because one is asked to become a Knight, one is invited to become a knight, and usually a person who is invited to become a knight either has had connections with the order by taking part in its activities as a volunteer or as a friend or as a member of a youth group, or possibly also following a tradition in the family in which perhaps one's father or one's grandfather may also have been a knight of the order. Malta has a long Roman Catholic tradition and no lack of chapels and churches. There are more than 360 in the archipelago, one for each day of the year, as they say here. Neo-Gothic, Baroque, and some modern. This chapel already stood here when the Knights arrived on Malta. 14th century frescoes still adorn its interior. 
but the most impressive church is St. John's Co-Cathedral in Valletta, the Knights' former chapel. The gilded basilica is sometimes referred to as the Baroque Sistine Chapel. Its floor is covered with 400 marble gravestones with the names and coats of arms of families significant to the order. The ceiling paintings are oil on stone, executed by the Calabrian artist Mattia Preti. They depict 18 scenes from the life of John the Baptist. Each of the order's language groups had its own side chapel for meditation and prayer. This is the German chapel. It was recently restored with financial assistance from the German government. The oratory contains two paintings by Caravaggio, probably the greatest painter of the Baroque period, St. Jerome, and opposite, Caravaggio's most famous work, The Beheading of St. John the Baptist, the only one of his paintings that the artist signed. There are 70 parishes on Malta, and each of them flies the largest flag possible on feast days to venerate Mary, the Mother of God, for instance. Or like this one, the gold and white flag of Vatican City. Every parish has its patron saint. Some villagers have as many as four. Marsa is a working-class suburb of Valletta. Many of its residents have jobs in the nearby dockyards. It's hardly a prosperous parish, but no expense is spared on the patron's feast day. The Festa, as it's called, is one of the liveliest and most traditional events of the year. The celebrations begin with a mass and continue with a colourful procession. It's something in between uh, the religious sense of the people and the traditions of the people. So it goes back uh, many, many years back. Obviously, from year to year, they invent something new. So that's why it has remained so powerful. And uh, in, in, in our religious uh, setup in Malta, I mean, we are Latins, and that means that we like a lot of noise even fireworks, so we have those in every feast in Malta. Christianity first came to the islands many centuries ago. St. Paul is said to have converted the Maltese when he was shipwrecked here in 60 AD. Biblical scholars may have their doubts about which island Paul landed on, but the islanders are firmly convinced. They'll show you a grotto where the Apostle is said to have stayed. St. Paul's Grotto, it's called. Tradition says that he was in that grotto, that that's where, was where he was imprisoned. So it's, it's a, uh, it goes back centuries, this tradition. 
and the Maltese believe. And actually, even when the popes came to Malta, they always visited the Grotto of St. Paul because the tradition is so, so profound. A short distance from the grotto, there are some Christian catacombs, one of many sites that bear testimony to the early Christianization of Malta. Another indicator is the old capital, Mdina, the silent city. Where the 17th century Baroque cathedral now stands, there was once a Norman church. It was allegedly built on the foundations of the Roman proconsul's residence, a man called Publius. According to tradition, he was converted by St. Paul and became the first bishop of Malta. But no period of history has shaped Malta more profoundly than that of the Knights of St. John. Processions like this one remind visitors of the Knights' historic influence. They presided over the island's fate for 268 years and, many people think, led Malta into a golden age. In 1798, Napoleon seized the island in a lightning attack. He's reputed to have said, the order fell because it had to fall. Napoleon's conquest broke the worldly power of the Knights of Malta, but the order and its legacy continue to this day.